This podcast is a member of WGPRN, WildGamesProductions.com. Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Darker Days Podcast, episode number 12. I am Vince, your host, along with my faithful co-host, Mark. Mark, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, Vince. Yeah, welcome, folks, to number 12, the Dirty Dozen. Uh, how are you doing, Vince? Superb. Excellent. <laughs> tonight, we have a special guest with us tonight, uh, White Wolf Freelancer, David Hill, Jr. David, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How's everything? Good, good. Glad to have you on tonight. He'll be giving us his take on what's going on. He'll give us uh, some updates on what he's doing, and uh, he'll answer some questions that we some people left in the forums, and he'll give us his take on everything. So uh, let's start the show off. Dave, why don't you just give us a little bit about your uh, background of gaming-wise, how you started in gaming, things like that. Uh, how I started in gaming. Um, I actually... I played a little bit of D&D as a kid, but it didn't really catch with me very much. Um, so I took a huge, huge break after a couple of games of that. I really got into it with Vampire the Masquerade when I was like 12, I think. Mm. Um, and really, I would say 75% of my gaming experience was World of Darkness related. Um, cool. I played a lot of different stuff, but I consistently play two or three World of Darkness games a week now. I'm kind of a nerd. <laughs> a week? Excellent. Wow. That's really good. <laughs> And you are expecting a little one next month as well. Yes, right around November 15th-ish. Oh, congratulations. congratulations. Good stuff. Thank Definitely. You. And your wife is also a, uh, a writer as well for White Wolf, correct? Yes, actually. She's done quite a bit of um, writing in the gaming industry. I would venture to say she. I think she's done more than I have. I know she has for more for White Wolf, but um, yeah, she's also a writer. Excellent. All right. Mark, want to reach down that mailbag and tell us all the wonderful mails that we got this week. Yes, I have uh, quite a few mails in this week. First one comes from our good friend Alakoff, who writes with another bunch of interesting ideas. He suggested doing a primer on the various World of Darkness games for those who don't know them very well. Something similar to Matt Buffington's brief overview of Werewolf the Forsaken back in uh, episode one of the Darkling podcast. Um, so if there's an interest in that out from our listeners, if, for example, you've heard us talk about uh, Mage the Awakening or Mage the Ascension, but you don't know what that is, let us know, and we could do a little segment covering that game. The same, of course, goes for the various vampire or Promethean changeling games, etc., etc. Hmm. Alakoff also wonders if there might be any interest in a humorous top ten lists type segment, something like, uh, I don't know, top ten reasons why Samuel Hate isn't really all that bad. Uh, and he's also designing an indie-style game over at the Forge called Frozen Dawn. Um, so why don't you guys head on over there and give him your thoughts. Mm. I had a cool mail from Ben Barth. Uh, he's actually uh, Matt Buffington's old roommate, and he's written asking for coverage of Changeling the Lost. Now, we get lots of requests for Changeling, both versions, so we're going to have to uh, bone up on our Changeling knowledge and cover that one sooner rather than later. Maybe. Uh, another mail from Brian Westcott. Uh, he's still working on his Three Fates game. He's sold all of his old World of Darkness books to Noble Knight, whom we mentioned in Darkling episode number two as a place to sell and pick up out of print books. Mm. And he's decided to use the new World of Darkness. So uh, be sure to have, let us know how it goes there, Brian. Um, my favorite mail of the week has come from uh, Bog and Knight. 
An awesome, awesome story. Uh, Bogger Knight was down on holiday in Sydney with his family and was visiting the Sydney Opera House, um, renowned center of world culture. And he says he he heard the uh, dulcet tones of ACDC coming out of the PA system there. And so he went up to one of the attendants and asked them if they could replace ACDC on their home turf with the Darker Days podcast, which he happened to have a copy of with him. (laughs) And, of course, they played it, right? Yeah, no, no, oh. they said no. Um, but you know, top prize for for audacity uh, there to to Bogan Knight. Uh, fantastic stuff, fantastic, absolutely brilliant. So he he, um, he holds he's holding two awards now. The uh, yes, the strangest right, places yes. and <laughs> trying to get our show the most publicity. Fantastic. Uh, he was also asking if there was any interest in a Darker Days T-shirt. Um, so that's something which we'll put out to you listeners. Uh, would you uh, show your love for Mark and Vince and the Darker Days podcast uh, in public? Um, if so, let us know, and we'll, uh, we'll look into making merchandise of that nature available. I was also thinking maybe, well, we do the shirts, Mark, and we can get a rubber re- finger for refreshing the mouse on Never mind. <laughs> can model it on my own uh, rubber implement. That would be quite good. There you go. Um, Bog Knight also has some other plans that might be of interest to our listeners, but we'll get to those in a minute. Um, Spaz Jedi wrote with some great words of support for the show, so thanks for that. He's also worked on a conversion or adaptation of Mage of the Ascension over to Mage of the Awakening rules, and has posted this over at our forums. Um, I think it's one of the better Mage conversions out there, uh, mainly because he uses inspiration from non-World of Darkness game lines as well. So that's definitely worth a look. You'll find that on our forums. And finally, of course, shouts out to our latest members, Insomnia Walking, Rogue Fox 89 Agent Conrad Gray, Arcanaries, Spaz Jedi, and someone calling themselves Machine 4 or Machine IV. I um, don't know how to pronounce that. I wonder who that is. Yeah. He's a jerk, I've heard. <laughs> He's a jerk. <laughs> He's a big spammer. Yeah. I'm going to have to ban him in the forums. Okay. <laughs> if you're just walking into this podcast for the first time and hitting the wall going, what the hell is this and what are these guys babbling about? Basically, the Darker Days podcast is a White Wolf uh, fan-based podcast. Uh, basically, each week, Mark and I, or every other week, Mark and I will do uh, some features on the old world of darkness and the new world of darkness, and we'll read your newsletters and your forum responses, and once in a while, well, as of late, every while, <laughs> we'll have a special guest on the show, such as Mr. David Hill, who's in the background listening carefully. David. It's been back, it's been <laughs> back-to-back for the last few episodes, hasn't it? Yeah, it has, actually. And you Very can visit us at darkerdays.tk or uh, wildgamesproductions.com slash forums, or you can email us at mark. Darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. No pause this week. Uh, Or you can follow uh, me on Twitter, AlucardD20. Or you can also leave a voice message on Skype. Try to keep it under three minutes. I mean, we don't want just long voicemails. AlucardD20. That's a Skype. Okay, well, let's get on to our network news. Uh, Mark, we have the other Mark show, Liquid Weird, which he should be updating pretty soon with some more um, information about Dragon Con, I believe was the last we were listening to. That's very cool. Indeed, yes, Liquid Weird, um, available at liquidweird.net. And there's also uh, Now Playing, one of our other sister shows on the network with Matt Buffington. And that's to be found at mbuffington.podbean, slash podbean.com, sorry. And that's uh, movie reviews that's done by uh, Matt and his wife. Uh, Extremely cool. We also have another sister show, uh, 
hosted by myself and Vince called the Darkling Podcast. Episode two was just released last week. And that's a short 15 to 20 minute show where we focus on listener submitted segments. And you could use uh, the voicemail that Vince just mentioned, Alucard D20 on Skype to submit your uh, segments there. Or you can drop us an MP3 or host an MP3 somewhere and we can pick it up and play it on the show for you. Definitely. Just make sure you get your recording levels, you know, so Mark doesn't have to sit there and fiddle with it. Yes, spend six hours on Audacity, smoothing it out. <laughs> yeah. Also, I mentioned Bogger Knight had some plans that might be interest of interest to our listeners. He and some of his pals are planning on putting together their own podcast uh, to be called Mirage Arcana. They plan to have the first episode out by mid-November. Now, Mirage Arcana will focus on a review of an old-school game each episode, and discuss not only a play session with the game, but also a broader gaming topic related to the session. So for fans of old school and out-of-print games, watch the horizon for a mirage. Hmm. Hopefully he'll negotiating his way under our network as we speak. That would be cool. Uh, Mark, didn't you say there was some White Wolf news at the top of the show? Um... I did, yes. There's been three new releases over on White Wolf in the last few weeks, which we didn't mention on our previous shows, but just to highlight them here and now. Um, two PDF exclusives and a, a new bundle from DriveThruRPG. The PDF exclusives, the first one is Goblin Markets. That's a PDF exclusive book for Changeling the Lost. has advice on constructing your own Goblin Markets, rules on buying and selling, and some sample characters, markets, and an SAS market scenes to drop right into your Changeling Chronicle. The other PDF-exclusive chronicle is Proverbial Monsters, which details nine monsters to use in your World of Darkness chronicle. It's got story ideas and the SAS storytelling adventure system scenes to use with each monster, and suggestions for integration with many of the other World of Darkness games. That one looks extremely interesting. And the, uh, the bundle is the War is Hell bundle. It contains Dogs of War and the Ruins of Ur uh, SAS, which to me looks like the Clive Barker Jericho's game. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm kind of biased in that regard. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Best not. Mm-hmm. And what's our last thing? Uh, that was the three. Goblin oh. Markets, War is Hell, and Proverbial Monsters. Oh, my bad. All right. Awesome. Let's get on to everybody's favorite segment, the reason why everybody listens to the show, Mark Spotlight. The Secret Frequency. Yes. Welcome, everybody, to The Secret Frequency. Now, today we're going to take a look at the tunnel people. This suggestion was submitted by Neil, a good friend of mine and a member of my gaming group, uh, Hi, Neil. Um, when he, he put this one in, I wasn't sh- sure whether or not to use it. Uh, it's kind of poignant, and I found it, you know, it's pretty uncomfortable. The story itself comes from Las Vegas, and is basically this. There's a newly wedded couple who share a well-organized home in busting Las Vegas. They have a neat, if compact, kitchen, a furnished living area, a bedroom with double bed, wardrobe, and bookshelf featuring a wide selection of books, including a Frank Sinatra biography and a Spanish phrase book. And they make their money in some of the biggest casinos in the world. But their life is far from the ordinary. Because along with hundreds of others, the couple are part of a secret community living in the dark and dirty underground flood tunnels below Las Vegas's famous strip. They don't work in the bars or the kitchens, but they credit hustle. They prowl the casinos, looking for chips left by drunken gamblers, or money left in the machines, or make a living through begging and dumpster diving. 
Now, despite disease, black widow spiders, and floods, the people who live down in the flood tunnels have made elaborate camps with furniture, ornaments, even working showers made from office water coolers. Uh, they even have an art gallery done by local residents and graffiti artists. Uh, but their belongings, for example, are raised up on packing crates to lift them out of the constant flow of water that runs through the drains, either from heavy rain or from water that's piped down there by nearby construction sites. Some of them are down there because of struggles with drug addiction or problems with the law. Some came to Las Vegas looking for work or fortune in the bright lights and found little besides hardship. Others have fallen on hard times because of the recession. Some of them have full-time jobs. Now, estimates place the number living underneath Las Vegas at around 700, living in close to 350 miles of tunnels. Wow. Yeah. Uh, many of them are very entrenched down there, and they resist attempts to move them back up into regular society. The most simply have nowhere else to go. Now, stories of people living under the streets are not new. Most famously, I suppose, the mole people under New York received a lot of coverage a few years ago. But the mole people, if they even even existed, and there was a lot of controversy about that, were allegedly very insular and unwelcoming of scrutiny. The folks under Las Vegas are quite the opposite. You know, they're very open about who they are and why they are there. So, people living beneath the streets. Where's the supernatural angle here? Yeah. Well, the simple answer is, there isn't one. There doesn't need to be one. And, you know, like I said at the outset, I wasn't really sure about including this in the show. Um, A little bit, you know, a little bit too much of of a poignant subject. But as my buddy put it, it's the poignancy that makes it good game material. You know, every gaming group I've been a part of would expect to have people living in the storm drains of Las Vegas to be either crazy cultists or some sort of degenerate, basically subhuman and sliding into a sort of feral existence. The last thing they'd expect would be people making as normal a living as they can. Homes and trying to live a normal life. Uh, and it, it, it highlights the strength of the human spirit in the richest country in the world uh, and at, at a time when, uh, although there's war on it, it's, it's not a war that's, uh, that's being fought largely on a domestic front. Now, in games overrun by supernatural wackiness, a story like this highlights the utterly human aspect of the setting, devoid of thrills and sinister conspiracies. It can throw the supposedly elevated concerns of the player characters into stark relief, and that is, for my part, its greatest strength. Because these are real people living right under your feet, there's a degree of intimacy that almost demands it left, that it be left as a wholly mundane situation. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't fold it into the supernatural world, of course. One obvious method is to have a character wind up living in the tunnels. Well, the Darkness player characters notoriously have a hard time holding down a job, keeping together a family, just being normal. And bringing them into the tunnel society is an interesting way to show the consequences of slipping through the cracks in society, no matter how many dots you have in the forces arcanum. Um... The player characters might need to head into such an environment to seek out another of their kind who's fallen on hard times or taken refuge beneath the streets, or they may need to rescue or rehabilitate a relative of one of their allies in return for a favor. And yes, there is, of course, the possibility of solitary vampires, bone gnawer, guru, or lost Prometheans lurking beneath the city streets. All of these classic tropes would work well in such an environment. But really, that's almost not necessary. Uh... 
in closing, really, when looking for inspiration for the world of darkness, often the real world is uh, is already dark enough. Wow, I could just I could totally I could totally see using this and twisting it around to a whole society under there and using it for a hunter game, having mm. the hunters having to go down to the tunnels and seek someone out like a daughter got kidnapped and going down there and just killing and running around and you know all that fun stuff that you know hunters can do. Hmm. Showing the other society. Dave, how would you use this in one of your games? I would probably go the hunter route, honestly. I think that that's a really great um, sort of way to bait and switch the characters. I love in hunter games using normal humans um, as sort of a problem. I, I like having hunters find out that what the problem is is actually just not a monster and seeing how they yeah. deal with it. Awesome. Okay. Thank you, Mark, for that compelling... Oh, I should say thank you, Neil, for that. Yes, indeed. We appreciate that. And now let's move on to the original or classic World of Darkness, where we take a look at uh, Vampire Origins and Myth. We haven't had a lot of coverage on Vampire the Masquerade or Vampire the Rec Room. Uh, Little by little, we're going to get more into that. Some people have asked about it, so we're starting this week. Mark? Yeah, um, alternate Vampire Origin Myths. Um, in Vampire the Masquerade, the Cain myth was prevalent that vampires are descended from Cain, who killed Abel and was cursed by God and refused to repent his sins, and therefore turned into a vampire. Um, I remember reading Vampire the Masquerade first edition when it first came out. This was fascinating and fresh and new. As the years have gone by, it's you know some of the shine has worn off and it's become somewhat encumbered by by years of uh, of canon. Um, so maybe you want something that's that's new. Maybe you want to restore mystery to the setting or keep your players guessing or present alternate views of different clans of kindred. So here we're going to present a variety of different origin myths of Vampire the Masquerade. Now many of these have already been alluded to in Vampire Supplements. We're going to highlight five of them here to showcase how you could develop your own. Uh, Now Vampire the Requiem has done a great job of this already. Uh, In Requiem, there's no universally accepted origin myth. Vampires are variously described as being descended from Longinus, the centurion who speared Christ on the cross, or from the mythical crone, or even from the legendary Dracula himself. So listeners could, for example, go and check out Vampire the Requiem for a whole bunch of fascinating alternate origin myths. But for now, we'll look at five from the old world of darkness. First off, there's the uh, the classic Cain myth uh, that two brothers fought, one killed the other, and uh, a vengeful, angry god laid down a curse. You could take the angle that this is just a corruption of a far older story that predates the Judeo-Christian faiths. Legends of fratricide exist in every culture. Most of them also have a first murderer. So depending on where your vampire clown or bloodline comes from, they might, instead of talking of Cain, they might talk of Ixion or Sutek or Lycaon or Huitzilopochtli as the first of their line. And by the time the second city rolls around, the survivors of the deluge might simply have settled on a unified myth to teach their children, obscuring a deeper truth long since forgotten. Um, Cain is just a name, after all. Definitely. And also, I just want to point out that if you do want a little a different take on uh, the of Cain, you listen to uh, Beckett's segment on the Dark Days. Uh, sorry, was it the Darkling podcast number two? Has an interesting take on the Book of Nod and Cain. Also, you can reference the Dark Ages book, which has an interesting take on uh, Cain itself, too. Yes, the Erceus Fragments is a very interesting angle on that as well. Mm. Um, 
So beyond the initial Cain myth, where can we go? Well, what about looking at vampires as children of a lesser god? And this is the classic origin story of the children of Set. Simply put, they claim their clan is descended from a god, not some murderous farm boy. Um, Claiming a divine origin gives your vampires all sorts of assumed privileges over mortals. You You were put here to feast, to rule, not to shirk and hide in the shadows. Uh, if you're the particularly creative sort of storyteller, you could build an entire religion around their supposed genesis. And again, like Vince says, this is something that was done very well in the Dark Ages line with the uh, Canite Heresy book. You could work something like that uh, around uh, the Setites or whatever clan you choose to be of divine provenance. Now, in a way, it's not so different from the Cain story, which places God as the first cause of vampirism. But this version recasts it not as a punishment, but as an elevated state. And if you've listened to one of our earlier shows where we talked about the Jail of Night, you could tie this in with that, where vampires are the exiled aristocrats of Metropolis, the the first city, ruling in the name of the Demiurge over his fallen creation. Now, moving on from there, we can look at vampires as the offspring of Lilith's brood. And here we have a myth that works well for the Gangrel, for the Lianan, for the Lamia, or even for the Chiasid clans. Uh, if you take Lilith as the first vampire, as some sources suggest, uh, Revelations of the Dark Mother being one of them, you could have a whole series of clans descended from her, uh, independent of the Cainite lineage. They'd be distant cousins at best. Of course, Lilith, like Cain, is, at the end of the day, just a name. Vampire the Requiem talks of the crone. Uh, could this be an aspect of the Three Fates, the ancient triple goddess? And again, this ties in with the previous myth of divine origin. And, as I said, works well with the revelations of the Dark Mother supplement. Now, what if vampires aren't descended from gods or cursed heroes or godlings? What if they're just alien parasites? Uh, This is fun for the Tsimiche, for the Lasombra, for the Bali, and anyone who's a fan of Brian Lumley's Necroscope books. Simply put, vampires could be the result of parasitic infestation from somewhere other than this world. A disease that propagates itself down through the generations. Uh, Brian Lumley, uh, who is, in my mind, at least a big inspiration for the Tsimishé clan, has them as being this kind of symbiotic leech that infects a person, gets in their body, and then passes its eggs into their victim's blood. Uh, And it's cool if you like a more body horror angle to your games, or if you want a scientific edge to vampirism, and that allows the truth about the vampiric condition to be completely unknowable, totally alien. Uh, the sort of thing that player characters are never going to find out. And if they do, they're really going to wish they hadn't. Mark, didn't they take that take on the vampires in the Imani Cook uh, World of Darkness version? I'm not hugely familiar with uh, Monty Cook's World of Darkness, actually, but I, I, I know that they did use something similar to this yeah. in the uh, much-loved book Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand, mm-hmm. uh, where they suggested that the vicissitude discipline might be some kind of disease uh, from a, a, an alternate spiritual dimension. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it wouldn't be the first time that it's appeared in uh, Vampire the Masquerade supplements. Now, finally, as an alternate take, uh, you could have vampires as being the results of spirits melding with flesh in ancient times. And this is the approach that Anne Rice used in her Vampire Chronicles books, um, hugely famous, of course, to uh, fans of Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, but it's also hinted at in later supplements for Vampire the Masquerade with the connection between uh, Kupala and the Tsimishé clan. 
Uh, it also works well with the La Sombra, giving them an origin tied to the Abyss. And you could link that in, for example, with the Demon game, if you wanted to work a bit of crossover there, uh, as with any other clan with a strong spiritual outlook. And if you are a fan of crossover games, it ties in very well with Werewolf the Apocalypse, allowing you to link vampires explicitly to the worm. But also consider vampires' unchanging eternal nature. You could maybe make them offspring of the Weaver instead, creatures locked in an undying stasis. And if you want to get all Gnostic, you could make the Weaver a personification of the Demiurge, and you're back to the Jail of Night and the exiled aristocracy of Metropolis. Now, it begs a few questions, of course. If vampires come from so many different places, why are they all so alike? They all need blood. They all take damage from sunlight. Uh, they all suffer frenzy. Uh, what's the common ground that gives such disparate creatures these shared characteristics? Uh, one possible answer could come from Kindred of the East. That provides the option uh, where primordial beings uh, called the Wang Tian fell into disfavor with the gods and were cursed to a vampiric existence. So maybe all progenitor vampires hail from an earlier age, and this shared heritage is what gives them such similar characteristics, despite coming to unlife via different routes. Yeah, I know. Vampires are descended from the exalted. <laughs> yeah, okay. Now I've blown it. I'll stop. <laughs> Enough said. Five alternate origin stories. Uh, make of them what you will. Wow. You've blown it. No. <laughs> Dave, do you have a take on any of this? Um, yeah, actually, I do. Um, I was kind of thinking about that. In my games, I tend to, because um, I play a lot of Requiem, where it's very toolbox approach, um, I like to do newer vampires. I don't like my vampire um, creation myths to go way, way, way far back, um, mm. like biblical times or later. So I've actually I've um, tied mine a lot to like the Crusades. Oh. Um, cool. A lot of a lot of stories, kind of similar to the Dracula story, where you've got this sort of, um, you know, romance, this sort of anger at God, curse sort of thing. Um, I've also I also ran a relatively successful game where all of the vampires were descended for, um, from a screw up of John Dee's in the what thirteenth awesome. century. Yeah, it was fun stuff. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, I think that wraps everything up, Mark. Would you say so? Uh, I'm good to leave it there. John D, that's a, that's a great idea. All right, we'll be back right after this. Good evening. This is Beckett, and you're listening to the Darker Days podcast brought to you by Wild Games Productions Radio Network. A podcast about everything World of Darkness, both old and new. Delve into the secrets and unearth the mysteries. Or just see what the shadowy side of gaming might have to offer Okay, we're back. Thank you, Mr. Beckett, for that wonderful bumper for us. Mm -hmm. As we move on to our new World of Darkness and a little review of Innocence, uh, which I actually have been looking at quite a bit as of recently since we had that game running in our forums that is on hiatus right now. But it's quite interesting being able to play a child from age 7 to 12. I wonder where they came up with that concept of that, just to play a child. David, do you have any um, knowledge of the, where they came up with that all of a sudden to play a child like that? No, you know, I um, I know that Matt was talking about it, and people were asking about, um, what's the game, Little Fears? Mm -hmm. um, Matt said that he hadn't read it, um, but it's uh, had afterwards he did read it, and he says it's very much in the same vein. Um, I don't know where he came up with it, but I thought it was an interesting concept because um, all of the writers are parents. I thought that sort of added a really sympathetic touch to it. It's a very great much, book, yeah. though. It has um, playground fighting in it, which is the best fighting style in all of the World of Darkness books. 
It's quite a bit of quite a bit of some letters in there, Mark. We were talking about how there's a letter from to Santa, I think it was. Yeah, well, it opens, you know, it opens with the uh, the usual set of fiction and I was kind of flipping through that and then <laughs> there's the the first uh sort of artifact that you see is this a letter to Santa where a little girl is asking Santa to please take back her dolly because she doesn't like the other toys and did bad things to the cat because the girl wanted to play with her other toys. And I just thought, whoa, <laughs> okay, fantastic. Um, then there's lots of these little things, uh, letters from kids or from their teachers about kids, diary entries, drawings, um, kids' impressions of the horrific. Each one is an adventure scene in its own right. So I was like in love with the book from uh, only after a dozen pages of seeing these things. They're really nice. Excellent. Um, what also struck me uh, uh, was the fact that the book is scattered with essays about running games based around children. Uh, little things like the place of children in horror fiction, um, how to capture those important rite of passage moments from a child's life, children and their supposed cruelty and whether it really exists or not. But also far more serious issues like abuse and the real world predators who prey on the young. Um, vital to the supplement these uh, and I found them the, a real strong point and uh, they're very useful for games that feature children even in passing uh, even if even if not uh, focused on them um, and like David says yeah the book is uh, written largely by by parents and that really shows and the insight that it gives into the, into the minds of children and their attitudes is very strong uh, and more so in the essays from the authors than anywhere else in the book um, like I said bears repeating these essays are the strongest part of the book even if you're not running a, a children-based game, you could read these and get a huge amount of useful information for portraying children in your adult-based games. Um, another thing, uh, you know, the the book contains character creation rules, uh, an overview. You don't really need the World of Darkness core book to use uh, uh, Innocence, which on the one hand is a big plus, you know, and the rules are ones that we're familiar with, but with a few sensible tweaks for playing children. You know, they have less skill points and less skill specialties. And there's notes on how easy it is for kids to run away from fat, overweight adults. <laughs> uh, systems for bullying and being bullied, tweaks to morality, tweaks to combat. There's just enough difference to make a difference. Now, some of it's obvious and it could be figured out yourself. So in a certain sense, you're paying for stuff you might already have. Um, but some of it is nicely innovative. And if you don't have the World of Darkness core, you'll need it all anyway. Now, I thought it was an interesting choice to reproduce so many of the core rules rather than just listing the changes. And to be honest, I'm not sure how I feel about this. On the one hand, you know, I'm primarily an Old World of Darkness player, so I'm used to having all the core rules repeated in every book ad nauseum. <laughs> um, on the other hand, it is a break from New World of Darkness tradition, and it does take up much of the book. So I'm kind of in mixed feelings about that. It's, it's got its advantages and disadvantages, I think. Well, it's good that they go over everything and they adjust, just show you right there how everything's adjusted as opposed to just giving you a one-line sentence, change this. Yeah, that, that is true. And in some places, you do need a new system. You know, they have a thing called assets and faults, which replace uh, virtue and vice. And your kid's asset and fault is the dominant traits obvious to all who meet the child. Um, and, it, you know, it's used to, uh, to regain willpower as usual. Uh, but it's nice that it's it's kept away from the seven cardinal sins and cardinal virtues. Now, also said there's a big uh, section on the storyteller advice for uh, running a child campaign of uh, game story. Wow. Yeah, that's quite good. Um, a lot of it is obvious advice. It's common sense, and not much of it's remarkable. 
Um, but then when they really get into depth in that chapter, the section on actually portraying child characters is excellent. covers a wide variety of stuff, including the, the child's developmental phases, uh, how children see sexuality, how they experience education. Very good. And then it's followed by more detailed storytelling advice that really raises the bar. It includes a very useful look at different genres of children's fiction. Uh, things like... Um, dark modern fairy tales, such as the stuff that Neil Gaiman writes, uh, young adult horror, you know, everything from Goosebumps to Twilight, uh, fantasy, the inevitable Harry Potter, but also uh, Cooper's Dark is Rising series, and horror films like Sixth Sense and Stand By Me, uh, and even Aliens, you know, which featured a uh, little newt. <laughs> True. It also had a, a pretty big section that was interesting, I thought, about growing up, turning the child character into an adult character. I thought the take on that was interesting. And also, <laughs> I did have a laugh at some of the antagonists they had in there. The bully, the spooky kid, the nasty old man, and the local thug. I especially like mm-hmm. the nasty old man. <laughs> yeah, it's like old man Withers from a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Yeah. Except uh, he's, he's going to get away with it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, there's a rehash also of the material on ghosts. Uh, but this time with some very cool child-centric examples. Like little ghost girls, which always just creep me the hell out. Um, a dead teacher, a scary Cujo-like dog, um, imaginary friends, night terrors, child snatchers. It's a very strong section. It's brimming with inspired archetypes. Um, and then it wraps up with some sample stories. Uh, a 200-year-old murderous music teacher. A goddess-like entity that dwells beneath a school. I love this one. Uh, you know, kudos to whoever wrote that. Scary juvenile detention facility. Um, one about a really horrible monster called the Mountain Mother who steals kids and takes them away into her subterranean home. And another one about a supposedly caring adult who is going around stealing children's life forces to prolong her own life. Wow. Yeah. And it wraps up with an appendix covering other World of Darkness game lines and how to present those as allies or antagonists for the innocent game, you know, Vampire, Werewolf, Mage, Promethean, Changeling. But that's not the best. Oh, wait. Wait for it. And the best it part of the whole index. entire book, it has an index. <laughs> like three pages of index. Fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, it gets for me, it gets 11 out of 10 just for having an index. Okay, Mark. Come on. Serious. No, okay. All right, you know, um, the, 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 for me, the, the greatest strength of the book is that it was written entirely by parents. That lends it an authenticity. Uh, you, you can't fake that, you know. Um, I, I did think it could maybe have done without so many reprinted rules. Uh, a collection of tweaks might have made for a slimmer book. But on the other hand, it, it makes for a compre- comprehensive supplement, and it'll eliminate page flipping between this and the core book. So I guess it depends on your preferences. Well, so, okay, on a more yeah. serious day, eight, maybe nine. Um, thematically strong, mechanically sound, and a real creep fest to read with my kids running around the living room being kids. Uh, yeah, good stuff. Very good. <laughs> I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Uh, I still like the fact that it has all the rules there and it just tells you exactly what the changes are what you have to do. I, I like the new World of Darkness system, but I hate the fact that you got to flip through book to book to book to book. I like that they reprint everything on the book. So... Makes it easy, makes it portable, that's true. Yeah. Now, you, you've, you've, you've experienced this in play, you were saying. Uh, was it Law was running a, a, a chronicle over at the forums? Oh, I actually wasn't involved in the game. I was just observing the game, but... Oh, okay, right. Uh, she was running it. It didn't really get that far because a couple of people had some problems, so it's put on hiatus for just a little while until they can get mm-hmm. things together again and start playing again. Looks interesting. Yeah, definitely. I was uh, getting into reading it a little... She had them doing background stories and character sketches. It was really getting good, and I was like, "Oh damn!" When they had to, you know, 
couple people had to drop out for a little while because they had some problems. But you know, I'm sure they'll be back. Well, I never, I never read much of the game material on the forums, and to be honest, I would, was never particularly taken by the the idea of playing a game based around children. But having read through World of Darkness Innocence has really opened my eyes to the concept. Um, and in my Mage game, we've done a couple of flashbacks to when the characters were kids, and I thought, you know, we could do this as actually a full-blown session. Um, so I may well uh, be trotting that one out for my Tuesday night group sometime in the near future. Dave, what's your take on Innocence? Well, one thing that I uh, wanted to touch on is, I don't, I don't know if either of you guys noticed, but the rules in Innocence, well, for one, I guess it's supposed to be used as kind of an independent game, but mm. it acts as a um, sort of a World of Darkness revised-ish. Um, I use the, the rules from Innocence whenever push comes to shove. Um, I tend to use it over the traditional blue book World of Darkness really? because like the language is very clarified. Things like the grapple rules are real cleaned up. Um, so that actually gives it its own value. Like it, it, it has cleaned up a few of the big clarity issues that were in the World of Darkness core. I love Innocence, though. Um, Matt, um, he's a, like a speech and language therapist um, for children, mm. I want to say. Don't quote me on that yeah. specifically, but no, I think that's, that's what right, he yeah. does for a living. He knows a lot about development, and it really, really shines. Um, I honestly, I'm turned off by the idea of playing children, or at least I was. Um, I have a two and a half year old daughter, and I just, it was sort of a taboo topic for me. I've seen too many people playing the proverbial, like, Zamitsi smoking crack out of a baby's ass, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> I think that was actually in the, the Zamitsi clan book. I can't remember, but um, wow. I, I just never really got into that. I don't really like child abuse. It's not horror for me, it's just. Dumb. So this is nasty. I, I approached, yeah, I approached Innocence from a really sort of jaded viewpoint, and then I read it, and I just I fell in love with it. It made me really want to do that. Um, and we've actually allowed a couple of um, Innocence-based characters, younger characters, in our chronicles. So it's it's really good stuff. It's it's very meaty. It's very. It really is one that wins you over very very quickly. Yes, absolutely. It changes opinions like that. It's yeah. nice stuff. Well, yeah, I, I definitely I picked it up after looking at the uh, the stuff that was in the forum when Law was running it. I was just like, this looks pretty interesting. So I actually grabbed the book, and actually I'm kind of happy I did because, like Dave said, the, some of the rules are a lot more interesting to use than what the uh, blue book has. So I love the cover as well. This sort of <laughs> very classic black cover with a little child's face peeking out the corner. Very yeah. evocative. I have to say, I do love the artist artist that the artistry work that's been done on the uh, New World of Darkness as of recently. So they've been doing a good job on that. We have to get one of those artists on the show to talk to them about their experiences in the uh, covers. Or Yeah, I just saw the cover for the upcoming Mage Chronicles guide the other day. It's fantastic. Beautiful. It looks really, yeah. very pretty. Oh, they did big time with the Mage books. I'm really impressed with all those Mage books. Mm, very nice. Okay, well, let's get on to the Q&A section of the show tonight. And we're Q&A with Mr. David Hill. We have a bunch of questions for you. I think the first question I want to know is why is all these why do all the freelance writers come <laughs> why do most of the freelance writers come from Pennsylvania? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like you guys all gathered up in Pennsylvania, which far out of my reach, may I add, and decided to start writing there. <laughs> 
Well, it's um, I'm actually I'm not originally from Pennsylvania. I come from Ohio. Um, I mostly lived in California. I just recently moved here with my wife um, because we had a child. Her family lives here, and we mm. moved out. Um, we kind of got a couple of leads on freelancing with White Wolf. Um, we started working it a little bit, and then at Gen Con, we were speaking with uh, Martin Henley and Chuck Windig, and we realized they lived like a hop, skip, and a jump from us. Yeah. Um, so that was just a weird coincidence, and I know. Um, Rich, one of the um, one of the managing editors at White Wolf, he um, lived in the area a lot. Um, so I think it's I think it's just conveniently located. It's um, it's real close to New York, so we've got a lot of people who are interested in publishing in general. It's close to DC. It's all over. But I don't know. I I, I guess um, there's this concentration of four of us, and we're very loud people, um, so we stand out. Um, myself, my <laughs> Martin and um, Chuck, so and I mean we're all we're all very vocal, very accessible people. So I think it just seems that way. That's, that's probably what it is. Excellent. And uh, David, do you have a, a website or an email you can uh, someone can contact you if they have a question for you? I absolutely do. Um, you can go to my website, which is machineageproductions.com, um, or you can email me. It's machine, as in the word machine, um, IV, as in the Roman numeral 4, at gmail.com. Um, I am very accessible that way. You can also reach me at Twitter at David A. Hill Jr. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm very accessible if anyone has any questions or anything. Cool. Excellent. So you are that guy on our forums, Machine Ivy. Oh, never mind. I it is, re it is revealed, I yes. am that jerk. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate you coming on the forums and posting up some information for our listeners so they can get some questions down for you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to our first set of questions by Mr. Zorlak, who uh, always has questions and is a big Exalted fan. And uh, may I add, he does run games over Skype every once in a while for Exalted, and I'm trying to get involved in one of his games. So thank cool. you, Mr. Zorlak. Uh, his first question is, what's your favorite WAD book, uh, new or old? Okay. I um, Actually, I'm going to answer for both of them because it's just such a distinctly different thing. Um, for Old World of Darkness, I'm going to have to say Gilded Cage. Um, it was like a really inconsequential book talking about kindred politics and sort of how vampires go at one another with their influences. Right. Um, and that was really like sort of the heart of old Vampire the Masquerade for me is um, what was in that book. Um, it presented in very, very clear language. Um, it cleared up a lot of questions. Like, I know that the, the vampire book, um, the core said, you know, vampires are political, vampires do this and this, they influence the world, etc. This book said how, and that was kind of an important touch for me. Um, now, as far as New World of Darkness books, I'm going to have to say Damnation City. Um, it's the book that I have at my gaming table, no matter what I'm running. Um, I use it for any of the World of Darkness titles. I like to wing my rules, so like I don't really like to look them up whenever I'm playing, but Damnation City has a lot of like random NPCs. It has random motivations. Um, it's got a, like a flowchart for a street chase. It's basically just like a box cool. full of practical stuff. Yeah, it, it just takes off the burden of STing. You don't have to be as like... You don't have to have as strong um, a focus on improvising. You can kind of let that out of your hand. And is this strongly urban-based, as, as the title would suggest? Or I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, it's um, it's actually it's huge. It's like 400 pages, roughly. It's a gigantic book. It's all about oh. cities, um, at least at its core. It is. It tells you how to build a city. Explains like the the inner workings of a skyscraper, like what the various floors are probably like. 
Um, and then it just uh, it has literally like a hundred NPCs in there that are just a couple sentences that tell you their motivation, um, gives you a little cue, so you can just toss them at your characters, and it's like plot waiting to happen. Excellent, excellent. I'm, I'm a big fan of Toolbox plug and play uh, material. That sounds interesting. I'll have to check that. It's, it's been mentioned actually a couple of times when people have asked for reviews. Just the other week, someone was mentioning Damnation City. It's it's an amazing book. It really kind of changed Vampire for me. Right, right. And the Gilded Cage. I mean, I I, I didn't read that one so much, but it struck me that it came out for a, a a book that's so central to the Vampire Masquerade ethos. It came out very late in in the game's run. Yeah, it was um is like as far as I can tell, like I don't really know about like things like sales number, but I think it was really like overlooked. None of my friends bought it. Um I bought it and I loved it. Um I knew a lot of people who were like, Oh yeah, no, it's just a politics book, it doesn't have any superpowers, I just passed it over. <laughs> but no, I I adored it. It really sort of brought me back into vampire at the time. I was kind of bored of it and that got me back into things like LARPing and everything. Very inspirational. Excellent. So your favorite line of books for Wall of Darkness would be Vampire at this time? For old World of Darkness or new? Uh, let's go with new. Uh, for new, I'm sort of torn. Um, I would say it's either Vampire or Hunter. Mm. But like the the reason that's sort of challenging is, is I think that Requiem kind of got off to a rough start. Like it didn't really grow and blossom um, into itself until right around the time that like Damnation City came back uh, came out. Like. I wasn't too in love with all of the Covenant books. They're they're pretty good. Like they're so solid writing in there, but it didn't give the game a lot of identity until then. Um, now things like Ancient Mysteries, Ancient Bloodlines, they're some of the best books I've read as far as role playing supplements go. Beautiful art and everything. But Hunter, the my favorite thing about Hunter really is that every every single book for it so far has just been outstanding. Like every one I pick it up and I'm like, I want to play that. Um, you know, I want to run this game, whatever. So it. The, the difference is, while Vampire has just a glut of awesome material, um, it sort of took a little while to find its identity. Hunter was right there, right at the get-go. Hmm. Excellent. And what's your favorite system that's not uh, World of Darkness? I'm going to have to say um, Gumshoe. Uh, wow. It does, oh, like... Cool. Yeah, it does a lot of the things that I really like in an RPG, um, and it's also it's one of those systems that's really easy to run without a book open. Um, I hate having books open at my table. I just can't stand it. Um, I don't like whenever my players have to flip through rules and stuff like that. So Gumshoe really helps out with that. Hmm. Have to look into that one. And uh, what is your uh, favorite CD to listen to or music to listen to? Uh, okay, so this is one um, I've got like a little list here um, because I saw technical difficulties. Sounds like it. I think we lost uh, David here for a second. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, we got you now. Okay. I can hear you now. Good oh, stuff. That was weird. Um, yeah, so I've got I've got a little list. I saw it on the forums. I was like, I can't really answer with just one. So I've got actually four things. Um, sort of run the gamut there. Um, there's a band called Alabama 3 from Brixton in the UK. Um, their first album, Exile on Cardholder, um, Cold Harbor Lane, sorry. It's um, like all this weird stuff put together. It's like techno, country, rap, rock, gospel, everything. And it's like, it's really funny. It's based around this like fictitious church that's based around Elvis. Um, <laughs> it's brilliant. It's, a, it's probably the best album ever written as far as I'm concerned. Oh, cool. Um Sister Machine Guns Metropolis is probably the album I listen to the most in the world. Um, it's 
real like hard edgy electronic stuff but it's also got like a lot of piano work and a little bit of rap and stuff it's it's versatile um third kmfdm naive <laughs> one of their first albums it's amazing i think it influenced probably 75 percent of what i listen to today um and lastly prodigy's music for the jilted generation um amazing yes. album yeah, big part of my growing up. Um, I would say about half of those uh, tracks on that album, like they get me moving within about five seconds. So it's like real ingrained in my subconscious. I hear it That's and a, it just brings back memories. Excellent. That's a great album. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, well, he also wants to know why, and it's kind of a general question, but why do you love role-playing games? That's... Um, it's a kind of difficult question. Uh, I would probably say that it's mostly because of the choices that you have to make, uh, because it's all about like choices and consequences. Basically, like whenever you're playing a role playing game, it's like real life, except you're not really responsible for shitty decisions. Um, <laughs> you can sort of like close the book, or you can make another character. So like. If I'm playing a character and I think, well, my character would probably stab that person, I'm not going to lose my house for doing that in the game. Or, like, <laughs> if my character gets, you know, romantically interested with some stranger, has a fling with her, uh, my wife's not going to kill me for that. Unless so. she's playing the game with you. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's it's like sort of scientific experimentation, except in game form. Right. Cool. Excellent. I love that question. He asked, uh, Zorlak puts that to all our guests. I think gets some really fascinating answers out of that one. Uh, that's one of my favorite questions. Okay. And okay. next set of questions um, is from our one and only bucket full of Beckett's. Yes, we'll reach into Beckett's bucket and uh, produce a, a, a sweet dozen here. Um, <laughs> firstly, he wants to know what sort of project, both for and not for White Wolf, would you be most interested in doing? Okay, um, so for White Wolf, that's really not a very fair question. I could probably, like, right off the top of my head, if you asked, I could list, like, a hundred things I would be interested in doing. Um, like, if you asked me on ten different days, you're going to get, like, 15 answers. Um, World of Darkness has been a big part of my life. Um, I've been playing it for years, and I love contributing to it, and I'm always coming up with new stuff. Um, I would love to do about, I, I don't know, I could probably do it as a full-time job. It's it's really uh, I, a labor of love for me. Um, outside of White Wolf, I'm currently doing that project that I would be most interested in doing. Um, okay. I'm doing a yeah, I'm doing a game called Machinesite. I just released a um, basically a teaser adventure. It's like a one shot for it. Um, it's a it's like a sci-fi horror game, kind of like Bioshock or Event Horizon, except All instead right. of like a traditional role playing game where like you're trying to like emulate reality with your rules and stuff. It's all about like movie logic and movie tropes. Like how at the end of a horror movie, the only person left is the, the, you know, young cheerleader girl, but she somehow is able to take down the monster. Like the rules yeah. are supposed to represent that movie logic instead of real That's world fun. logic. Mm. Cool. I just, I just finished playing Bioshock on the Xbox. So, uh, uh, interesting. <laughs> uh, his next question, what sort of things do you do to prepare to work on a project? Uh, and do you ever work on multiple projects at the same time? Um, for preparation, it depends on the project I'm working on. Um, if, it's, if it's a World of Darkness project, I usually don't have to do a whole bunch of um, preparation uh, because I'm kind of in that mindset. I play a lot. So typically I'll, I'll come up with an idea and then I'll run that game. And if it works, then I start writing. If it doesn't, then I tweak it. 
Um, if it's a non-World of Darkness project, I do a lot of research. Like, I like to read. Um, I Recently, I was writing for Shadowrun, and I think I wrote, what, when it comes down to it, I wrote about 12 times, or, or sorry, wrote, I read about 12 times what I wrote, um, just because I had to look into it. I had to answer all sorts of questions and stuff. Um, now, he was asking about multiple projects. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do multiple projects pretty much constantly. Like if I don't have multiple projects going on, I worry um, because I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I'm a freelance writer. So my work is my, my life. Um, I have to be doing multiple projects. And if I'm not, I get bored, honestly, like my mind goes all over the place. Right. Right. Cool. Um, how much time uh, per day would you spend as working on a single project, say an average supplement, I guess, you know, what are your, what are your working hours? My average day. Um, that's I, what I tend to do is I, I'll prioritize like my, my my main project, the one that I usually have the most word count for, the one that's closest to its deadline, and I'll usually write about eight to ten hours on it. That's not like constant. Like I get up and I do stuff. Sometimes I'll run errands or whatever. Um, so I do about eight to ten hours on that. And then if I'm doing a side project at the time or just a smaller project, I'll do about two to four hours on it. I, I write way more than I should. Hmm. That's yeah, how you get so paid. It ends up being about yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's about ten to fourteen hours a day. Wow, cool. That's a, that's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, this is an interesting question. Um, uh, if you had the ability to change only one thing about role playing games, what would be the top few that you'd look at, and why would the number one be your choice? Okay. Yeah, I saw this question. I don't completely like. I'm I'm going to try to apply it the best I can. I didn't completely understand it. Um, I don't know if you mean if you means like you know get rid of hit points never existed or something like that. I don't know I uh, quite what I mean. Yeah. Um, no, I totally hate <laughs> hit points. I don't understand what they are. Um, I also yeah. don't really like experience points. Uh, I was see when I read it, I was thinking a little bit like um, the industry in general, and basically that mm. I would just I just want it bigger. Um, I I like the idea that. Um, accessibility is a big part of it. Um, right now, I guess there, there are a lot of companies that are trying for accessibility, uh, things like licensed games and everything. Um, but there's sort of, most of them uh, that are doing licensed products, they kind of apply it or approach it from a very um, game standpoint instead of approaching it from the license. So I don't think it really opens it up. I think a lot of gamers who are interested in those licensed products will play them, but I don't think it brings a whole bunch more people into a hobby. Like, that's my thing, is whenever I go to a convention or whatever, I, I try to draw people into this hobby. Um, you know, there's sci-fi fans out there, there's fantasy fans. I want to open it up. I think that gaming is something that should and can appeal to pretty much everyone in the world. Like, why doesn't it? And I think that there, there's a lot of there's a lot of close-mindedness to gaming in general, and I think that that's really the thing I change the most. Right, right, right. Cool. Um, if it, if it's applicable, what's your favorite non-White Wolf game system? Um, your favorite, for example, D and D book and adventure, or D and D campaign world, or non D and D setting. Uh, and what about these? All of these sets them apart for you. Okay, um, let's see. As far as D&D books go, um, specifically D&D, because it's like, you know, the giant in the industry. The so monster, answer, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, it kind of gets its own sort of answer. Um, I'm reading the DMG2 right now for 4th edition, and I love it. Um, I don't really do a lot of D&D. Um, actually, 4th edition kind of got me back into that side of things um, a little cool. bit. Um, 
And the DMG-2 is wonderful. It was actually, curiously enough, there was a big part of it written by the guy who did the gumshoe system. So, um, mm. that, as I said, I'm a fan of gumshoe. Um, and it's just... It's that Robin Laws? Yeah, Robin Laws. Yeah, um, great stuff. Wonderful writer. Um, we all hope that we could be game designers like him someday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, whenever people think about D&D, and this is like the big thing for me is that they don't think about innovation. They just think about, you know, putting out product, doing the same things that they know are tried and true, getting those numbers, whatever. But the DMG two is like really full of innovative ideas. Um, like I know I don't really read a lot of like GM or ST sections of mainstream books because most of the time it's just the same crap. It's the same, like, you know, here's the 10 rules for running a game. Don't screw your players. You know, don't be adversarial, all of that BS. Well, I've heard yeah. that. I've read that in a hundred books before. Um, yeah. That's just the opposite of what the DMG2 is. So it's a whole bunch of new stuff. Um, let's see. They were asking about D&D settings. I like Eberron well enough. Um, I Whenever I play a game like D&D, I tend to do my own stuff. Like, I don't really do a lot of um, pre-gen settings. Um, sometimes yeah. I'll get the books and, like, I'll take some of the crap out of it. But I don't, I, I don't really like settings as written all very very rarely yeah um big big into homebrew yes that's all we do in my gaming group i don't think that we've i could i cannot point a finger at a game that we've run directly as it is written in a book i've never done it um cool and i guess as far as non-dnd stuff i would probably say BattleTech. um nice. as far as settings go just because of the fact that like there's all this really cool history, and it's not like hacked together gamer nonsense. It makes a lot of sense, and it's it's real like heavy political, but it doesn't just justify having giant robots in there. There's a there's a lot of actual real world logic applied to it. So yeah, interesting. Ah, cool. Um, Beckett also wants to know: Do you generally listen to podcasts? Um. I actually don't listen to a whole bunch of them. Uh, I, I have been listening to this one. Uh, most of that reason oh, is cool. because it's long. Um, so I can kind of put it on while I'm doing other stuff, like I'm writing or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Also, I, it's interesting to hear some of my fellow writers um, talking about these various things. So that that's a part of the reason. I also, I listen to Eddie's podcast for White Wolf because um, it's interesting news. It's kind of interesting opinions. Eddie's a great guy. Um, very... Uh, gives a lot of good introspection into the industry. Um, and, like, I guess I listen to a couple of, uh, like, music podcasts, but it's all, like, weird, obscure stuff that only applies to, like, six people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I don't really I don't really do a lot of podcasting. I don't really have a lot of time. Okay. Um, okay, here's one. If you were a New World of Darkness or Old World of Darkness, if you prefer, character of your choice, what would you be? Um, a mage of this order and master of this in this sphere, uh, a werewolf with 22 strength and willpower 2, etc. Is that the strong, dumb werewolf? No. <laughs> 22 strength. <laughs> I don't even know how to do that. Um, okay. Yeah, Beckett, so, if you can do that, let us know how. Yeah. <laughs> seriously, seriously. I mean, I guess like an old werewolf, maybe like Might of Thor or something. I, I don't know. Um, like, I'm, I'm a story nerd um i don't really understand a lot of like the way that people tweak systems and stuff so i um i would say either a lucifuge from the new hunter books because i am absolutely in love with them um i like like their motivations i, th I think they're really sympathetic characters like i could write a whole game about them um they're very very cool 
Um, and say if it wasn't that, I would have to go for the Dampiers out of the new um, Night Horrors Wicked Dead book. Mm. Uh, um, because like I don't know, it's they they don't have like superpowers. They've got like a little tweak or something that affects the rules, but they're um what they are is they're like magnets for weird shit. They um they attract vampires to do all kinds of mean stuff to them, and I just think that that's really interesting, and it leads to um, plot that you don't have to really motivate. It comes to you. Yeah, that's what lots I'm of fun. Yeah, cool. Um, now you've mentioned uh your uh, your rough working hours in a day uh, when you get the okay to do a project how much time would go into it working from start to finish overall weeks months uh, how long does that take in general well um so that's okay so that's usually a that's a that's a pretty hard question because projects vary in size yeah. but yeah. um my side of it it basically it just depends on the word count i would say on average most projects take about a month um I write on average about two to 5,000 words a day on a given project. Um, and usually, like if you're doing like a chapter in a White Wolf book, for instance, they're usually about 30,000 words, roughly. Um, so if you go back and you, you look at your same material, you play test it a little bit, usually you do that in about a month. Um, but like sometimes sometimes you get a project that's like, 5,000 words and you're like, oh yeah, I'll do that tomorrow. Um, so it just kind of depends. But like, if you're looking on the, the publication side of it, it's, um, it's a lot different than that. Cause like I hand it off after a month and then it just goes through this outstanding process. Um, I think Eddie actually talked about it on the podcast a couple weeks ago or last week, but, um, like just as a, an anecdote about that, like I wrote a chapter of Signs of the Moon, uh, which is an upcoming werewolf book. I want to say that it's like coming up in November or December, but I don't know, so don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> I wrote my chapter of that in August of last year. Um, wow. My, my first draft, yeah. So it goes through like this outstandingly large process. Um, my, my wife got pregnant in February, there's a good chance that she would have conceived, gestated, and bore that child within the time that the book took to produce. <laughs> so that's like sort of my comparison there. It's like that's a fantastic. baby, except it takes longer. <laughs> cool. Um, of the work that you've done, uh, what are you most proud of? Um, the one that I'm most proud of, really, there's a um, there's a vampire product that I was just writing. Um, I just finished it a couple weeks ago. It would have to be it. I can't really talk about it, but it's wonderful. It's I'm absolutely in love with it. I think it's something that vampires needed for about five years. Um, so, oh, okay, cool. All right, I have to look forward to that one then. A secret pride, excellent. Yes. Um, <laughs> and by comparison, is there anything you wished you had never put your real name on? Um, no, I, I actually, I am very glad to be able to say that I am proud of all of the work that I've done. Um, I like all the companies I've worked for. Um, I know most writers at some point in time in their career will find something that they did just for the money, but I have not done that yet. So I'm, I am fortunate. Cool. Cool. Um, now you mentioned there's a bunch of you guys all huddled together down there in, uh, mm -hmm. uh Pennsylvania. Um, when you're working on a new project, do you, how often do you interact with other writers and White Wolf or whomever you happen to be working for? Is, that, is it like a daily contact thing or you touch base every week or two? 
Um, I would say, ironically, it's probably less than when I'm not working on a project with them. Hmm. Um, well, because whenever we have active projects, we're all very, very busy. But like, so I do, I keep, I keep close associations with a lot of the writers. I talk to Chuck, I talk to Marty. Um, there, there's a lot of them, um, a lot of the freelancers, John, John Kennedy, for instance, they're all on Twitter. They're all on live journal, whatever. And we talk pretty frequently. Um, we share horror stories about the writing um, business and whatever. Um, but whenever we're assigned, we are working like super hard and we're working all day. So we really sort of clam up um, and there's like so little that we can really talk about. So if, um, if we are working together, sometimes we'll sort of collaborate. Like if, like if we're doing a werewolf thing where everyone's got an auspice, we'll talk about it to see if we can kind of make them look a little bit similar or if, you know, we can kind of balance out the advantages they get, whatever. But, um, we really like writing is, um, is a very sort of independent process. Um, usually it's sort of, you do a draft, you hand it off, you get some notes on the draft, then you hand that off. Like it's sort of back and forth yeah. as opposed to an interactive experience. Okay. Yeah. Um, and finally, Beckett wants to know, I don't know if you can answer this, but in the various core books, who comes up with the different symbols, like the clan symbols, the order sigils and the like? Yeah. I was interested in on this one too. You know, I, um, I tried to get an answer for that one. I don't think that I can get it. I know that, um, I know that usually that's sort of the art director's purview, and I rarely ever get a chance to talk to that side of it. Um, so I don't know. And I, I think it's different for every game line. Um, or at least I think that, like, the World of Darkness, for instance, has one, and then Vampire has another. Um, so I, I think it's just kind of handled on a case-for-case basis. Okay, cool. Okay. Right, thanks for a Beckett's dozen there. Um, and Beckett's I think dirty dozen. come from... <laughs> from Spaz Jedi, right, Vince? Uh, yeah, he actually uh, has an interesting question, and you said you don't like to have rule books at the table, and you like to pretty much make things up on the fly, I think you said, instead of looking something up. So how would you take the World of Darkness setting and mold it into your little baby at the table so everyone would look at it and go, wow, that's interesting, or wow, David has a good take on that? Well, um, I do a lot of that, actually. Um, as, as I said, I don't really like to have the rule books open. I'm really good with remembering that sort of stuff, so I can kind of pop it out without looking. But, um, oh, see, big one I use. Um, I tend to add another class of damage onto characters, like Beyond Aggravated. Um, it was actually it was one of the ones that was used in Armory Reloaded. It gives the um, characters another, uh, like another layer of survivability. Um, I particularly, I did this whenever I was running a game based in the Fallout setting with the World of Darkness rules, mm-hmm. um, and like the characters were just dying all over the place. So I was like, we really need to fix that up a little bit. So all the player characters got an extra health chart, basically. So, um, cool. Let's see, that's one. Um, I also in my games, and I know a couple of the other freelancers do this too, but they um, start characters with ten merits instead of seven. Um, that like it lets you kind of round out your PC a little bit, do a little bit um, different things with it, and like also I tend towards real heavy social games. So if you don't have like status, contacts, allies, that sort of thing, you really kind of fall behind. Um, let's see what other ones do I use? Um, I also I I don't really do the um, weapon modifiers to dice pools thing. Um, I prefer to um, use that as automatic damage on a successful hit. Um, Mm. Because I don't really like like, grazing wounds. I don't like 
being plunked down to Dan, um, you know, after seven turns or whatever, um, I think that you get shot. You're pretty much screwed. You're on the ground. It's not good. Yeah. Um, so I, I do that. Like shotgun does four damage plus successes. So. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it makes it a, it makes combat a frightening thing. It makes handguns, shotguns terrifying. I have I, a exactly. question non-related to what Spaz Jedi was asking, but uh, with, with the contacts and allies, do you prefer that your players make those things up, or you like to just run on the fly with those things? Um, depends on the game that I'm running. Um, if I if I have a lot of prep time, I like the players to to work with me on that. Otherwise, I like to improvise it, and that's actually that's one of the places that I use. Um, I use Damnation City particularly is for allies, contacts, that sort of thing. I like to use randomness in, in that. Um, I like to be able to just kind of toss out to people like this is this is the person's attitude. This is what they're like. Um, they give me the uh, basic idea like I want to talk to a cop, and I'm like, okay, then it's um, this grizzled guy who needs his drink today and hasn't had it. Get his drink. I'm gonna on. have to get that book. That sounds excellent. Yeah, really. It's, Really, it's wonderful. You you should absolutely pick it up and get it. Um, if you if you don't like PDFs at the table, pick it up in hardback. Like it's it's a gigantic thing, so it'll also act as a bludgeoning tool of sorts. You can um, intimidate your players. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But no, it's it's a it's a wonderful tool. I've used it. I think it came out like something like three or four years ago. It was pretty early in Vampire, and I still use it to this day. I, I usually okay, cool. use I usually use the Mage Book for that since it's so large. <laughs> yeah, 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 but it's got all that shiny foil on the cover, so you'll screw that up real quick. Um, Damnation City is like a real sort of dark and um, not so glossy book, so uh, it doesn't suffer mm. the um, wounds and scars of bludgeoning your players. <laughs> I, I got a lot of use out of uh, Toolbox, which is a by AEG, which is a fantasy version. Sounds pretty similar to that. So, yeah, yeah. Damnation City, you can check that one out. Okay, and his last question basically is uh, your your experiences as a, a player or a storyteller. Can you just share some of your uh, some of your memories or something a really good experience you had? You're like, oh shit, that was a great game, and you know something like that. Um, yeah, I will. Um, I'm going to lean towards like more recent stories for this too because my ch- tastes have really changed a lot. I was I read this question and like I started jotting down a couple of ideas and I looked and I was like. How did I think that this was cool? Uh, like, I guess I've grown up a lot in my experiences. Um, so, like, I had a game once, um, and this is the sort of absurd side of it. I was playing uh, Mummy the Resurrection, where your characters effectively just don't die. Like, they die, but they come back. Um, yeah. We played, like, what was effectively a time-spanning, like, space-traveling game. <laughs> we oh. took the far end of it. Um but it was fun at the time. I was 16. Uh, and awesome. done, um, I want to say the revised guide to the technocracy came out right around the same time as the matrix. And I was something like 14, 15, 16. I don't, I don't know. Um, and we thought that that was really cool. Uh, we've, we've since learned, uh, but we used it. <laughs> it was a good time. But, um, recent stories, so I stopped making myself look like a fool. Um, (laughs) I've been running a a really cool vampire game. It's basically what it is. It's a reverse Hunter the Vigil game. Um, The the vampires of the city are all being hounded by hunters um, that are on the vigil, and lately their their big problem has been with the Canite heresy, which kind of takes it back to what you guys were talking about. They're this cult of um, hunters that don't really know where they come from. Um, they just kind of get messages that say, um, here's a jar full of blood. Um, 
hold this, ask the vamp, or you know, go to this vampire or whatever, and then ask the question, who is Cain? And then you'll be able to kill them. So they get like these weird powers that they don't understand, um, and cool. they don't know like why they're doing what they're doing. But it's associated with Cain from the Bible, who ostensibly might be a source of vampires in the world. Um, but they're they're batshit. Um, they're completely crazy. They're completely driven. Um, they don't need to understand where they came from because all that's important is killing vampires now. And I, I've been using them against my player characters. Um, and like by the end of the game, I've had players like grunting in anger just because of like the audacity of the characters that they're going up against. Uh, like they're like stomping over innocent people to get to the vampires, and the vampires are like, "We, we were using those innocent people as a shield. Why did you come through them?" <laughs> it kind of toyed with their expectations a lot. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Now. As a player, I'm going to have to say um, I played for about four years. I played a character in the Camarilla Global LARP. Um, he's a Deva Carthian, and he's, he's like pretty well-known. Uh, had a family that went like all across the globe. Um, and the, like, the important part was that he created his own bloodline. It was all about this weird philosophy um, where he, he believed that the kindred soul was tied to the body because they were static so that whenever the soul was stained by doing things that were wrong and degenerated you, um, you could fix that by destroying your body and regrowing it. So like he, yeah, he made this weird power where like you'd cut off your arm if you did something wrong and it would uh, stop the spread of the sin from infecting your soul. And it was wild. Yeah, yeah, we had a lot of interesting debates, and, like, the Lancaea Sanctum despised him because he found a loophole in their silly um, religion doctrine. So <laughs> it, it was a blast. Ah, excellent. Okay. And um, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was live action? Well, yeah, that was live action. Yeah. Cool. Right, we have another set of questions here from the other Mark, from the uh, from Liquid uh, <laughs> Liquid Weird podcast, uh, mm-hmm. which I'm looking forward to hearing about Dragon Con. Mark, put that up. Uh, <laughs> he wants to know why is there uh, why isn't there more support for Werewolf the Forsaken in the game line compared to like va- uh, Vampire Mage? There's not enough love for va- uh, for Werewolf. He's saying. Well, um, this is actually like this is mostly conjecture. Um, and I'm, like, not an authority on it, but I'm going off of things that, like, Ethan Skemp, who was the head developer of the game whenever it came out, um, it's stuff that he's said over the years. But basically what it comes down to is that Werewolf doesn't really need the same amount of material as the other games does uh, do because it's covered almost all of its bases really, really well. Um so, like, where it stands now, they're only re- releasing, like, real essential stuff for it. I know... Um, Signs of the Moon, I wrote the storytelling chapter for it. My wife wrote this chapter on Kahalith. It's all about auspices. Um, but the thing about it is there's already some auspice stuff in, um, like Lore of the Forsaken, for instance. And instead of rehashing that same stuff and making what would essentially be a reprint book, um, it takes all of that really essential information and it presents it in a completely new, completely interesting way. Um, I would say that it's easily the most like experimental of the werewolf books. And that's sort of the, it seems like that's sort of the philosophy that they're taking with it. I, um, I don't know if they saw um, 
Night Horrors Wolfsbane just came out. It's really interesting. It has a lot of non-werewolf stuff in it, so it's a good gateway drug. If you've got people who are complaining and they're like, I don't really want to play werewolf, I want to play mage, you can throw that stuff at their mage game, and they're like, oh, crap, werewolf's cooler than I thought. Um, werewolf is an amazing game. I think that it, um, the, the only... The only problem might be is that it's got a real high learning curve and it's like it sort of caters to specific tastes. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not a great game. It just means that it's sort of a, more, a little bit more of a niche market. I, I love Werewolf, though. I, um, I don't think it's not getting love. I think that it's just harder to sell. Not, not in like a dollar sense, but it's harder to explain and it's harder to get people to say, yeah, that's that's really cool. I think Geist actually has the sort of same thing going on. It's hard to explain. Hmm. Uh, we, we we touched on this, I think, a couple of episodes ago. Um, I think Wheel of the Forsaken is one of the one of the. It's a really innovative setting, and it, it steps away yeah. from from all other werewolf archetypes, either you know apocalypse or the more standard uh, uh, fiction, you know folklore ones, um, mm-hmm. and really creates its own universe. So yeah, I think that's that has a big buy-in factor there. It's very ambitious, and I think that that sometimes turns people off because sometimes people just want to sit around the table and just do something new. They don't really want to invest themselves in it. So it's not for the lighthearted. Yeah. All right. He, um, his next question, uh, he wants to know why the villain groups, in when you guys make up your villains or the antagonists or anything, why are they such they have better things and more of a badass than the PCs are? Is that just because you're trying to guess to them going for the super-powered or are you just... That's just the way you guys like doing things. Okay. So whenever I first saw this question, the first thing that like came to mind is, is that it's really sort of like, that's, that's a very like opinionated question. Yeah. Um, it assumes a lot of things. So, but I think, I think I can give it a relatively good answer. Um, if I had to make an argument for it, I think that the reason is, is because the so-called like villain groups, like he was mentioning the Sabbat, the technocracy, Belial's Brood, Seven, Balehounds, um, all of that stuff. It's, um, they're very sort of in-your-face world of darkness. Like, you cannot deny that this is this is what the world of darkness is about, and it's not hidden. Um, they're very strong, like, with moral gray areas, where you got, like, these people are all doing really terrible things, but they have good, strong motivations that make a lot of sense, and they're sympathetic. Um, but, like, honestly, like, if I look back at it, and I look at the games that i played, the games that I've run or whatever... I would say that the only one uh, of all of the um, sort of antagonist groups that I like better than the protagonist groups is the technocracy. Like, I really sort of clinched with that. I really love that idea of um, sort of denying magic for the good of humanity. Like, I think that that's a really noble cause. Cool. But I don't know. I just... I, I don't think that um, I don't think that they're necessarily better. I just think that it's more obvious that they are more of what the world of darkness um, represents without having to look into it. You don't have to really think about it a lot. It's just it is what it is. Mark, you, you want to grab the last two? Yeah, yeah. Um, he was also asking um, why do you think it is that White Wolf sometimes publishes books that it has previously indicated that it would probably never publish? Um, now, again, there's a certain amount of assumption going on there, mm-hmm. but he, he cites his examples, um, the Gehenna book uh, for Masquerades, the Clown books for New World of Darkness, uh, Ugly Nosferatu, Belial's Brood book, which is, you know, with playable splats and stuff like that. Um, well, okay, there's sort of two sides to that answer. Um, the first one is 
that you have to really pay attention to what those developers have said. Like, I don't yeah. actually remember them saying that there weren't going to be ugly Nosferatu, uh, for instance. I, I know that they said that they are going to open it up and they're going to make it more archetypal, less, um, less focused on just being ugly because ugly isn't scary. Like, it's not nearly as scary as other things. Yeah. Um, I know that initially they said that there wasn't going to be a Gehenna book. Like, I remember reading that somewhere. Um, I don't remember them saying that they don't intend on doing clan books. I do remember saying that if they did clan books, they wouldn't be recognizable in the same way. Um, yeah. Belial's Brood with playable splats. I don't remember anything about that. Like, maybe I just overlooked it, whatever. Um, but the thing is, like, I don't know that they really said that they weren't absolutely not going to do those things. I think that a lot of times it's just like, you know, if we're going to do it, you know, it's going to be down the line or we don't have it on the pipeline right now. We don't think we're going to do it because that stuff changes. Now, yeah. like the other hand of it is um, like White Wolf is not like this monolithic entity. Like they don't exist around like one person's creative um, genius, whatever. Um, development changes hand all the time. Um, like every couple of years most of the game lines have sort of changed from one hand to another. So yeah. I don't really think it's fair to expect a new developer to stick with all of the promises that an old one gave. Like I know if I got a development job, I wouldn't be focusing on what the old developer said. I would be focusing all my, on my, uh, sorry, all my energy on doing the best things that I possibly could. Like world, new world of darkness clan books are a perfect example. They're wonderful. Um, they're beautiful. They're, really ambitious they're experimental and they're definitely not like what you'd expect from a clan book they they're definitely new they are very different um the design is just outstanding and i think that if if you don't want them to do it that's fine don't read the book but yeah. they they found a way to do it in a way that they thought was awesome because really that that's one of the things you'll you'll always find with all of the developers um I've talked to a number of them. Um, like Ethan is a really good example. If he's telling you something, like if you're asking him a question, why did you do this? And his answer to paraphrase is always going to be because we thought it would be awesome. We thought it would be really good. Um, clan books are a great example. They are, they are very good. Uh, I don't think they would have done it unless they thought that they could blow people's expectations out of the water. Totally, totally. I think you also get, you know, like you say, sometimes the 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 uh, uh, the understanding of what's been said is not entirely accurate. But you know, once the rumor is out there and on the internet and et cetera, et cetera, you get this body of belief that claims that White Wolf has <laughs> said something, and then well, well, maybe we didn't. Okay, no, no, I read that you did. So uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, his last question is not so much a question, but it appears to be a, a plea for a service. Um, he asks, can you please give whoever decided to send the White Wolf booth to Pax, which he claims is Land of Swine Flu, instead of to DragonCon, the Land of Awesome, a huge raspberry for him and a swirling Zerbert. He had dozens of dollars set aside to spend at that booth, and it wasn't there. Dozens, he says. So, um, dozens, yeah. is only 12? <laughs> yeah, dozens is in twelve. That could be yeah, yeah that could be twenty four dollars. <laughs> That's so, not even a book. He can have um, a book. I mean, on discount, sure. Um, well, see, like I saw that question, and my first thought was, why would I go and like do things that involve my tongue and bodily fluids to someone who was just in a land that they said is full of quote swine flu? <laughs> I have a child. 
that would be very silly of me. Um, so, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> wisely chosen, wisely chosen. Um, the last three questions are for some guy called Darker Days Mark. Um, so, yeah, you can treat these with as much contempt as you like. Uh, Damn him. The Terminus Est. Now, for our listeners, uh, this is you've you've just released like a, a preview version of this over at your website, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, and it, uh, new one and it's right, and it's a, it's a it's a post-apocalypse game, but you can set the apocalypse in any period of history that you choose, and it's it's taken as I recall uh, the 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 Middle Ages, like kind of around the Crusades period, Black Death era. Um, uh, current era and sometime in the future as the three possible periods for the apocalypse there's also world war one so i i actually i took four things like everything i gave four examples for oh it's four right okay um awesome awesome i downloaded it was looking through it the other day really really cool um now what were the principal sources of uh, inspiration for terminus s now clearly it draws some inspiration from biblical apocalypses but were there others you know films novels comics uh, music even etc well, um, I was actually, whenever I was writing Chairman of Theft, I was working on a real limited time. Um, I wrote the whole project in less than a month. So um, I can't really say, yeah, I can't say there was a lot of, like, outside influence. Clearly, I've been influenced over the years by various things. Um, I actually, like, I read, like, something like 10 different translations of the um, Revelation uh, of John. Um, yep. So that that was it. Like, that was a big part of it, is seeing the differences in the, um, the sort of, um, different translations. I kind of tore it apart and did my own sort of version of that as well. That's not in the book itself because I didn't have the space to put it in there. But I, um, my, I did, I did my own hack of that book, um, and that was that was my um, part of my design document. But I would say if I had to go for another influence, um, I was listening to Nine Inch Nails as a Year Zero a lot. Um, oh, it, fantastic! Back, it, yeah, it's it's got like a sort of end of the world vibe. It's you know, high concept and stuff. Um, yeah. And it sort of, yeah, got me going. Like, it didn't help with a lot of the, the setting because not all of it was modern, but I yeah. love that album. I am a, an absurdly huge fan of them. So uh, that's that's really cool to hear. <laughs> mm. Excellent. Um, now, you work for Catalyst Games Labs. Uh, and you mentioned earlier you were working on Shadowrun and Battletech as well? I have not worked on Battletech. I really want to, but I have not. Okay, but you did work on Shadowrun. Yes, I've done work on Shadowrun. Uh, okay, so how how did you find working on a pre-established setting like that compared to working on one like The World of Darkness? I mean, Shadowrun's got a long history behind it. Do you found it came with a lot of setting or canon baggage that you needed to absorb, or were you were kind of free to run around and do your own thing? Um, in a word, um, holy crap, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was actually it was it's a lot of work. Um, it's very challenging, challenging, uh, but it's also it's also really worth it. The it's the opposite of the New World of Darkness. It's kind of like if you're trying to write at the very end of the old World of Darkness. Um, with New World of Darkness, like I'm like given a project and I just kind of do what I want. I try not to um, deviate too much from previous material, but I can do what I want because players are sort of expected to take what they want. With Shadowrun, you've got like decades of metaplot literally like they've just released their 20th anniversary um yeah. and it's it's harsh it's a lot of material um so like if you're talking about a city um you're not just sort of coming up with that city out of the blue like you've got 
eight to ten books that reference it. And in a time where, like, I don't really have, like, the hard copies of all of that, a lot of it, uh, the old out-of-print stuff, I've only gotten PDF. And, like, we're talking scan PDFs where you can't control F. Like, you have to... (laughs) page down, page down, page down, mm-hmm. and you have to find that information, it's it's really harsh. Um, it's like a research project more than a um, you know direct work of fiction. Yeah, but you find the end result is worth it. Yeah, it's really cool because um, you once you get going and once you've done the research and once you kind of get a feel for where you're at um, and all of the information is accurate, a lot of it writes itself for that reason, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of takes a little bit of that responsibility out of your hand. Like you do a lot more work in post, but later it's easier. Um, also, yeah. like maybe this is just me being self-indulgent, but um, it's kind of cool contributing to that because I've got this like 20 years of stuff and I'm year 21, you know, like I'm adding stuff onto that and that's official. And then in 20 years, there's going to be shadow run writers who are like referencing my stuff. That's really cool. I, yeah. The reason I find this interesting is because, I mean, okay, you mentioned writing at the end of the old world of darkness, and that one of our previous guests mentioned that one of the benefits of the new world of darkness is you haven't got to go and find out who is the prince of, uh, you know, uh, yeah, Pittsburgh that back in uh, that, yeah. Uh, but also um, with the, I don't know if you followed uh, the recent changeover with fourth edition D and D, the changes that were made to the Forgotten Realms. Uh, that's another setting that has a huge amount of, of, of backstory going on there. And so one of the reasons that they mentioned for, for stripping down a lot of that metaplot was to make it easier for new writers to, to write for the setting. So they didn't have to go back and look at 300 different realms books from the last 20 odd years. Really? Uh, so yeah, the different perspectives I think are quite interesting. Um, you were, you were talking about forgotten realms, the fourth edition. Um, yeah. My that it's actually kind of funny because we just started reading those. My wife and I, um, she, I've I've never really read any of that stuff before because, as I said, I don't really do a lot of setting stuff. But she was reading it, um, and she was telling me all of this stuff, and she's telling me all these like old war stories about her Forgotten Realms games and stuff. And I'm like, crap, I could never do this. Um, and then I read that, and like we both sort of our ears perk up at the same spot where it's like these are the changes. They skip forward like 150 years or something that's exactly what yeah. i thought the first thing was this has to be for the writers <laughs> yeah. <laughs> made their lives so much easier yeah that's exactly what it's like uh, cool um uh finally now you mentioned uh, earlier on that you you played a little bit of D and then, then swung into vampire the masquerade uh, how did you how did you get started uh, in gaming and once you got on going were you always determined to be a game designer or writer oh um okay so Basically, the way I got started in gaming, um, it's just just like I said earlier, sort of a twofold path. Um, I had some um, some friends that had hippie parents who had all of the old D and D material, like the the box sets of old stuff where you didn't have races, you had classes um, yeah. that yeah, yeah. yeah elf class all that, um, and like. I never really got into that, to be fair. Um, I played it with them a few times because my parents told me not to because it was satanic. <laughs> um, and there was a distinct lack of Satan in those books. Like, I was very disappointed. He's um, not there. It's true. <laughs> he's absolutely not there. Like, you could look, but he's it's just not going to happen. Um, so, like, I fell out of it. I thought it was a pretty nerdy thing. Um, it just didn't really appeal to me. Then um, I was... Um, you know, big book nerd, whatever. And when I was about 12, um, one of my friends got a hold of Vampire First Edition. Um, 
the cover was falling off the <laughs> little paperback thing. And, um, it was really cool. Like the Tim Bradstreet art really spoke to us and mm-hmm. all of that. And we just thought it was edgy. It was very, um, it was about like, you know, humanity and violence, but not against goblins and stuff. Um, so it, it, it was an interesting change of pace for us. And, um, while I guess I've, you know, changed, I've grown away from that a little, that's what got me into it. Like it was cool when other role-playing games just didn't seem cool to me. Um, and that's in like the truest sense of the word. So I got in with vampire, um, started playing all of the other world of darkness titles. Um, and honestly, I didn't, play very many other role-playing games like seriously i tried a couple i tried battletech when i was a um, little younger whatever but i never really got into a lot of rpgs until about i'd say three or four years ago i started playing a lot of them um heavily um so i guess i kind of regressed to prior um prior years like i am far less cool than i was at nine <laughs> <laughs> cool and so and did you always want to uh, once you you know like i say once you got started did you always want to be a designer a game designer or was that something you only fed into recently um it's something i got into recently the game design aspect of it i've been doing doing it for about two years um writing though i've wanted to do since college like i um i would say it, it was absolutely college uh, i was taking a college course with real like sort of hip edgy professor who was trying to tell us that you know writing could be cool without being self-indulgent and artsy and silly like he was very much like a blue collar writer um yeah none of the starving artist stuff it was just do your work um the textbook was stephen king's on writing um which is a great book yeah yes absolutely it's like the biggest influence on my writing um and like yeah, it really it smashed all of those silly traditions. Because when I was younger, I always thought, you know, writers were these sort of poetic types who, you know, didn't really work. They just sort of waited for their muse to happen. Well, mm. I don't really have a muse. Like <laughs> I have to come mm. up with my own crap because I'm not that lucky. Uh, <laughs> and that's it. Like, I, I, I grew up in a working class family. So writing became viable for me as a career when I thought, shit, I can do this and be a working person. Like I can, I can do this as a, as a job, not as some whimsical art. So that's what did totally. it. Cool. Excellent. Right. Well, I'm pretty sure Vince has got at least one more question for you. Well, I can't guess what it is. Let me reach <laughs> down on that, that bucket. That's not Beckett's. And, uh, <laughs> what, if you could be a household appliance, which one would you be? And why? A household appliance. Um, see, I could give you all kinds of crazy answers here. Um, but I would probably say, um, does my PC count? <laughs> We've had an iPhone. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm not going to use that because that's weak. Um, I would say <laughs> I, I George Foreman grill. <laughs> oh, God, um, cool. <laughs> and you laugh, but <laughs> before I was married, that thing was my king. Now it's like the heir to my throne. Uh, every, I use the George Foreman grill for as much as I can, and like I'm, a, I'm a professionally trained chef. Like I know that sort of thing, but the George Foreman grill just makes my life a lot easier. It does a lot of things, and um, uh-huh. I can just toss something on it. It doesn't prevent me from doing other work. I, I love it. I can't express enough love for it. That's awesome. Didn't you? Uh, I think I'd say you mentioned on Twitter that you had applied for the uh, the next food start, 
next oh, next chef yeah, was there? yeah. Um, I have not heard back from that, but I guess they're still doing auditions. So I'm hoping. Yeah, I was a um, I was a classically trained French chef, um, which is such a silly, silly thing if you knew me. Um, <laughs> and I also, I've done a lot of work in like Mongolian barbecues and stuff. Like I've juggled swords, um, that sort of thing. Um, awesome. Yeah, yeah, I, I love I love preparing food. I just hate the hours. Like, I don't like working weekends, and I don't like working evenings and holidays. Mm. Um, so I kind of got out of food. I would love to. I would love to do Food Network. Um, Next but, Iron Chef or something like that. Oh yeah, I would. I would love to do it. Okay. Although Cat Cora would kick my ass. <laughs> Is that who you would pick on uh, Next Iron Chef? Oh Cat yeah. yeah, I would. I would. I would rock that. Um, I would have my ass handed to me, but it would be by Cat Cora. Um, honestly, though, like Alton Brown is my patron saint. He is my hero. He is the best. I love watching his shows. And I, maybe you should go on Hell's Kitchen. Go against Gordon Ramsay. You know, I'm not uh, that kind of cook. Like, I don't. I don't think I can handle that kind of pressure. I would just hit the guy. Yeah, uh, uh, Britain's greatest export. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you, you no, got, no. Um, looking you guys good. Have him. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, cool. That's your best export. <laughs> that show is wonderful. Which one? Um, looking good naked. Oh, mm. yeah. It's, Gok, it's Gok one, really I think, positive, is cool. yeah. really good message. But yeah. All right, um, Dave. You have maybe we'll plug your website again and how people can reach you. Yeah, that would be um, machineageproductions.com. Um, you can check out my stuff there. I've got a free download of the first uh, first draft of Terminus Est. Whenever that comes out, it will be on a Creative Commons license, so people can you know torrent it if they really want to, but or or they can you know pay people. Um, I've also got a um, one shot adventure for Machine Zite, the horror sci-fi game I was talking about. It's like $1.99 on DriveThruRPG, but you can link it for, or there's a link on my site for it. Um, MachineIV at gmail.com is my email. Um, Twitter.com slash David A. Hill Jr. is my Twitter. And um, basically every every bit of contact information you ever want and then more are on my website. Excellent, and you can also contact him in our forums as he's been on there quite a few times reading and answering some questions that he's seen on there, so we appreciate that. Speaking of our forum, you can go to darkerdays.tk and click on a little forum link in the right-hand corner or go to wildgamesproductions.com. Click on the forum link there and hit us up, sign up at the forums, or you can contact us by email, uh, Mark. Radio at gmail.com much better, buddy. Much better. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, you can follow uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Not that I've been saying much lately, but <laughs> Alucard D twenty at, at Twitter, or you can leave us a voicemail on Skype. Uh, Alucard D twenty Skype. Uh, keep the messages relatively small. We don't need to be bombarded by uh, 10, uh, 10 minute email messages, but you know it happens. And I think that's going to wrap things up. Dave, thanks for joining us this week. We appreciate yeah, you coming you on the much. show. Next week. Uh, We'll be back with a special edition of uh, Darker Days. It'll be a Halloween episode, since mm. Mark already drops a bomb on that one. So, no, I'm saying nothing. <laughs> yeah, now you say <laughs> nothing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All righty, and we'll uh, we'll be back. Uh, have a great night, everybody.